The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, you are indeed awesome. We use that word to describe a lot of things, but it is truly fitting for you. You are great and high and holy, and you have also drawn near in mercy and grace. And it is astonishing how you have done that. You are awesome. Thank you. We ask you from the spot of being your people, we ask you for more kindness still. Will you draw near now in this moment and teach, and teach us in a way that is encouraging and refining both. Informative, yes, but but encouraging and refining. Make your word clear and, and make it more than intellectually clear. Make it sink into our hearts and lead us to walk after you changed. Show your awesome power and goodness in that way we pray. Build your church and honor your name. Thank you. Amen. No dessert until everyone finishes dinner, including their vegetables. That's a pretty reasonable standard that I guess most families sort of abide by. We're not moving on to the sweets until everything else, including the broccoli, is gone. So what happens? Well, some have already finished by the time mom or dad need to issue that statement, finish with seconds in fact, and they love broccoli, so no problem. In fact, the only real problem here is sis over there at the end of the table who hasn't finished and doesn't like broccoli at all. So here we all sit, waiting for the promised ice cream. And what's going to bring that ice cream? Sis, eating her vegetables. And so we all plead with her and remind her of the coming dessert, which will come as soon as she's done, but only after she's done. Unless, of course, mom or dad cave, and they, they give in to her, and they let her get away with disobeying, or if they separate her and give all of the rest of us dessert and not her. But if they are determined for her to enjoy the promised treat, and if they are also determined for her to enjoy the blessing of vegetables, and if they are also determined for her to enjoy the blessing of obeying mom and dad, if they are determined to do her all of that good, Kindly, they patiently wait. Now, I'm not trying to make a statement about how you should parent. You can do it differently if you want. But I'm guessing that most families have experienced something kind of like that experience and that actually resembles and maybe helps us understand the passage in front of us today in the middle of 2 Peter 3. A far more serious and far sweeter topic than dinner and dessert. The day of the Lord, with all of the judgment that it will bring, but especially all of the delightful deliverance that comes then too, when the day of the Lord finally comes. 
Last week, as we looked at verses 1 to 7 in this chapter, we saw the stated challenge made by these false teachers that Peter's been opposing. He calls them scoffers here because in mocking tones, scoffing, they say, they ask, so where is this promise of his coming? Which, of course, is actually a statement. He's not coming. Jesus is not coming back to judge. All of history is not going to be wrapped up. In fact, from the very beginning, it's all been same old, same old. From the very beginning of the creation, nothing's changed, nothing's going to change. And we saw Peter's rebuttal to that is to point out a fact that they skipped. God brought the flood. Evidence that he is determined to have a world made clean and righteous. He did that once after patiently waiting at least 1,500 years. All in the middle of humanity's sin, he waited and then he came. And he promised he'd do that again with fire this time. Now, it's been several thousand years since he made that promise. Yep, sure, true. But the promise still stands, and that means something for us. That's what we're going to be looking at today, how to think about waiting for and living in light of, even hastening, the coming of the promised deliverance that God is patiently holding off right now. Let me read the passage. This is verses 8 to 13, and then I'll draw out two observations. This is 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 8. <clears throat> but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which, white, in which righteousness dwells. Second Peter 3. So, two observations. Here's the first. God hasn't broken his promise. He's just waiting patiently for us. God hasn't broken his promise. He's just waiting patiently for us. Verse 8 essentially begins by acknowledging a fact, this whole redemption plan that God has made and has been carrying out, it has been going on for thousands of years. And of course, that's at the root of many human objections to it. They just say it, it's been way too long for this to be true, or at least to still be true. Peter says, Beloved, if you hear that or think that, don't overlook this fact. Last week, he pointed out something that the others had overlooked, and now he says to the church, don't you overlook this, that with the Lord, a thousand years is like a day. He's alluding to Psalm 90. We heard, heard some of that read earlier. That is a marvelous and deep, one of my favorite psalms. It's an important psalm written by Moses. And the whole aim of that psalm is to lead us into a proper comprehension of our place 
beneath the everlasting God, who is eternal, who made all that is, and by comparison to whom we are just grass, here today and then gone. Our, the nature of our existences is completely different. The, the scope of our existences, his and ours, what we, what we look at, what we think about, what we can be concerned about, completely different. Our time frames, completely different. Moses penned what Peter now here quotes, something we should remember and not overlook. Moses muses on our lives, and he says, our lives here, you know, just 80 years maybe, and it's all toil and trouble. And by comparison, for God, a thousand years passes like yesterday, or like a watch in the night, just, just three hours. A thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years, just like our night. Of, of course, Moses and Peter, neither one of them means this literally. They're just trying to remind us that God is extremely, profoundly not in a hurry. He's trying to remind us that he is plenty comfortable giving himself, if you will, chronological room to carry out whatever it is that he thinks he should carry out, however it is he thinks he should carry it out. He's not slow or late. Some might suggest that, scoffers especially, but he's working on a time frame that is his, not ours. And this in itself, that truth right there, I mean, half me wants to preach Psalm 90 because that truth right there is so important and so real and so life-giving for all of the Christian's life. If you kind of like sit in that and just contemplate it, it'll give you rest in everything. We, we sometimes, we, we sit and we worry about what's the nature of our particular congregation or how is, how is the church in America going? We're facing these times and the Western world and for God, that was like, man, that was like a pretty challenging three seconds. But it's our generations. He, he's just not concerned. He's not in a rush. He's got a plan. And we're worried about this. It'll, it'll give you rest in all of life to realize God's working on a different time frame. But Peter is utilizing that reality in, in, in this context as it says something different. He's profoundly, God is profoundly not in a hurry. Bringing about the end, middle of verse 9, not because he's slow or late, certainly not because he's breaking his promise, but rather because he is being patient toward you. Now we have to slow down right here and kind of pause because there's some tricky stuff here. Notice the you. He's patient towards you. That's the people that Peter is writing to. Not the scoffers. Not the non-believing world all around them the people of God. So we could say, God is patient with you or patient on your account, on your behalf, Christians. And then furthermore, when you realize that this delay is tied to the 
the end, the great end, you realize that you, that Christians that he's writing to, is not just the particular congregation that Peter is actually directly writing to, because those folks are long gone. If that was who he was being patient towards, they're long dead, the end would have come. He means you, Christians, you people of God, you reading this letter, and all of you who will ever read this letter. He's patient on behalf of his people, us included, all Christians, past, present, and from Peter's perspective, future. God is patient on behalf of his people. Why? For what purpose? Oh, keep reading. It says, patient with you, not wishing. Some translations will say not willing. That's probably a little better way because we sometimes hear the word wish and we kind of think of it as cross your fingers, hope. It's not what this is. It's the word for decision, desire. God wills. That's a good way to put that. Some translations, maybe yours actually has that. So he's patient with you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What does that mean? A lot of people explain that phrase by bringing right in here, bringing up the fact, and it is a fact, the fact of God's two wills, or it's two levels of will, if, if, if you want to think of it like that. And this is true. Maybe you've heard this applied in this passage. It's a common way to understand it. But generally in theology, it is true. God does have two wills, or maybe two levels of will. Easy example. God told us in the Ten Commandments, thou shall not kill. So he does not will, he wills against. He does not want murder. But clearly there is a lot of murder, including the murder of Jesus. God wills that there be no murder. God wills that there be murder. Two levels. You've got to understand them both, and they both are true. So there are two wills of God. And as you start realize that, you think, oh, sure, that's in a lot of stuff. God commands, but then God plans for something else. There are two wills of God. And some people understand that and bring that right into this passage, right into this phrase, and say what Peter is teaching us here is that God is not willing, God does not desire that anybody anywhere ever perish. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, so turn, says God. Jesus, all who are weary and heavy laden, everybody can hear me, come. This is true. God is not willing, in one sense, that anybody should perish, but in another sense, he wills that most people perish. Right? That's true. And people bring that right into this verse and say, that's what Peter's getting at. And that is true, but that's not what Peter's getting at. He's saying something different. That is true. God does will that everybody turn to him. He commands it, in fact, but he wills that most perish. That's true, but Peter is saying something else. And we're going to wrestle with this, not just to score some theological points. 
I can prove to you my particular perspective on this, but because it is very, very closely tied to the action point that's going to come up in the next point and next week also. It's very closely tied to what comes in verse 11 and verse 14, which you might guess in adjacent passages. It drives what's coming up. So we have to understand what Peter's actually getting at. And what he's saying is all to us, God's people, and all about us, God's people. Think of it like this. If I was a math teacher, which is a stretch, but if I was a math teacher and you were my math class, and I said, I'm patient with you guys, not wanting any to be confused, but all to understand how to solve the equation. All three of those phrases are all about you guys, the class. It's the same subject all through the sentence. You. Patient with you guys, not wanting any of you guys to be confused, which you will be if I get frustrated or rushed. That's why I'm being patient with you, not wanting any to be confused, but all of you guys to understand how to solve the equation. That's the goal. You'll be able to do the math, and it's hard, so I need to be patient. Same subject all the way through. My actions are all about you in every one of those three clauses. That's the point. That's the point in our verse also. God is patient on account of his people, and his people are still who he's talking about all through the rest of the, of the sentence. Patient with us because he is not willing that any of us, his people, Patient with us because he is not willing that any of us, his people, perish. That's us now. Patient on account of us. But rather that all of us would be brought to repentance. Us now. And those of us who will be his people a hundred years from now or a thousand years from now if Patiently, he continues to wait and holds back the judgment. He may still have a people that he intends to create a hundred years from now and then save, or a thousand years from now and then save. God's elect, a people that he has known from before the beginning of the creation. We don't know who that is, but he has a people that he has known from before the beginning of creation and all through time has across centuries and millennia brought them into being and saved them. He knows who that is. And he knows how long he has to wait till he gets to all of them. And he is patient, enduring through all of the sin and all of the wreckage until he gets what he's after. That all of us reach repentance and not perish. That's exactly, that's exactly the scenario, if you'll recall, in the days of Noah. When God patiently waited in the days of the flood, this is in 1 Peter, God was not patiently waiting for the people around Noah to repent. 
He was patiently waiting for the ark to get done so that he could save the people that he knew he was going to save. And as soon as the ark was finished, the end came. God is right now enduring all the sin in the world because God is right now being so very merciful to people trapped in sin right now in the world that he's going to rescue in time. That's his will. To save you, to draw you to repentance, to turn you, us, from sin and self to trust and follow him instead. Not to follow the false teachers, not to follow the, the sayings of the world, not to follow our own instincts and desires, but to follow Jesus. Maybe you're a Christian right now in sin. Maybe you're in the church and you're walking away. Uh, see the difference? Maybe you're a Christian right now in sin. Maybe you're in the church and walking away. I don't know which category you're in. Doesn't matter. This moment in which God is waiting patiently is to you a call. Repent. Come back. Or maybe you're here sitting in the church, and this is the first time you've ever heard any of this, and it's, it's like weirdly intriguing. There's something compelling in it. The call to you is repent and come. Always the call, repent and come. Whether you're a Christian in sin, whether you're in the church and kind of wandering, whether you're brand new, you know you're not a Christian, but you're here. The call is always, while this moment lasts in patience, what I'm saying is repent. And I'm saying that, repent, come, because there are people that I'm after, says the Lord. Maybe that's you. Come. Path that is to be walked is the path right back to him. The path of dependence on him and on what he's done at the cross. That's the path walked by the person who is not perishing. And always, God's call always is, come, walk this path. Repent, turn from the path you're on, and come walk with me. And if you say no, beware. Beware of verse 10. The day of the Lord will come suddenly, like Jesus and like Paul taught. They use the thief analogy. It's going to come. So knowing that, live a certain way. And we're going to, we're going to come to that in a minute, what, what he says about how we're supposed to live. But before we go there, let this first point just settle in here. The day of judgment is not here yet. And that's not because God's slow or delayed or forgot or went back in his promise. It's because he is patiently waiting, calling out to everyone, repent. Come to me, walk with me. Whether you're a Christian and you see your path, I'm, I should, I'm not where I should be, repent. If you're in the church, you don't know what you are, repent. If you're in the church and you know you're not a Christian, repent. Turn to him, walk with him. That's why he's still waiting. So understand that and see in that. See, sometimes we get this, we get this backwards. We see in delay, we, we, see, we tend to see like in all delays in life. If you ask your, a parent or a friend, hey, can I have, and they say, 
you know, next week, you say, like, oh man, I kind of want it now. The delay is bad. Not yet is not the right answer. We, we ask because we want it now. And when we hear not yet, we tend to get like sideways a little bit. See in this the kindness of God. He is mercifully waiting. He said, not yet, because I have a saving work that I'm still doing. In you, perhaps. Or in a loved one, or in a friend, or in somebody a thousand years from now yet, who you will come to regard dearly as a beloved brother or sister. It's the kindness of God that is waiting patiently. Not his delay, not his not his lack of care. See the care of God for you in this, not carelessness. Be encouraged by it, not rattled by it. And when people say, like, why hasn't it happened yet? Say, I can tell you why it hasn't happened yet, because God's too good. Because God in kindness is waiting, calling, maybe even you, to repentance. His timing is perfect, but it's not ours. But time will run out. The end will come. How should we live then? That takes us to the second point. Pursue godliness, helped by and actually hastening the coming day of promise. Pursue godliness, helped by and actually hastening the coming day of promise. Middle of verse 10, which is repeated at the end of verse 12, God's patience will run out, the end will come, fire will roar, and notice, burn up the heavens and the heavenly bodies. Now, it is also true that fire will fall upon the earth and that there will be a new earth. Verse 13 says that. Elsewhere in the Bible says that. So that's true too. But Peter right here is telling the story in a certain way to highlight one thing in particular, to highlight exposure. Notice it says, the fire is going to come and the heavens, that is the sky, and the heavenly bodies, that is all the stuff in the sky, planets, stars, clouds, etc., in other words, if you've got God and you've got the earth with us living on it, in between you've got the sky and the various other things, and all of that is going to be burned away. So there's nothing between God and us. And then it says that the earth and the works done on it will be exposed. Peter's telling this as if on the great day, God rips off the covers of the bed or flips over the rotting log in the forest to expose the dirt beneath it and all that's going on in the dirt underneath that rotting log. There's something going on there. You know it before you flip it over. But then you flip it over and you see all the stuff and there's nothing there to hide it anymore. It's all suddenly wide open, exposed before the judging eye of the Lord. Every work done in secret, every, every little whisper in every little corner, it's all exposed and shouted out from the rooftops for everyone, 
particularly for God to see and to judge. Everything, everyone laid bare and examined, and it's not just the non-Christian world, it's all of us too. It's everything done on the earth, and we're on the earth doing things. As Paul said, we also must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The log gets flipped over, and everything is seen. And so, verse 11, since that's going to happen, oh my, what sort of people we have to, just have to be. That's the nature of the verse. It's not actually a question saying, what kind of people do we have to be? It's a statement, what kind of people must we be? The answer is obvious, but he states it anyway. A people who live holy and godly. We don't want to be people when the log is flipped over and everything is exposed and seen and judged. We fail the test and therefore stand condemned. We don't want that. So be a person with a holy and godly life. The day of judgment is coming. That's what the verse says. Now, hear this. I do have to get your attention because this is critical. Probably most of us will get this, but maybe somebody won't. So hear this. We don't earn our salvation. We don't earn forgiveness at that judgment by being, trying really hard to, scared into, being holy and godly, and therefore God forgives you. That does not happen. That's not how the Bible works. That can't happen. It's impossible. Faith in Christ, underline alone, is how God the judge looks at us and counts us as completely sin-free. He acquits in his court, when he flips it all over and he sees, he acquits in his court by counting Christ's perfect sinlessness. Track this. Christ's perfect sinlessness as mine. And my sinfulness as his hung on the cross paid for. That exchange there that's the grace of God, the kindness, the undeserved, unmerited. We don't deserve that by being good. We don't deserve that by being pretty good. We don't deserve that, period. God, by grace, gives it. And it becomes ours, becomes mine, when I or you simply surrender in trusting faith. So we can say we are saved by God's grace, by that exchange, through faith alone. Through faith alone. So we've got to be, got to be really clear about that. Hopefully Junior's okay. <laughs> so we've got to be really clear about that. Don't miss that. Don't miss that in the crying. Don't miss that. However, that kind of faith, saving faith, is never alone. 
had an opportunity to say this before in Second Peter, you'll recall, which we'll talk about in just a second. But the Reformers said that too. Everybody's, everybody's repeated that down through the ages. We need to repeat it again. We need to constantly remember that. We are saved by faith alone. Saving faith is never alone. Because Peter already taught us this in First Peter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. This is where the book starts, you'll recall. When he saves us by grace, his grace also gives us, it says, everything that we need for life and godliness. Same thing, this godliness. He gives us by grace everything that we need for that. The same grace that saves also gives me all of that that I need. Gives you all of that that you need for life, for godliness. So, if he gives that, he gives it for the point of escaping the corruption of the world. He gives it for the point of living out his image so that we will actually live in a way that's actually pleasing to God, increasingly so as we mature. It's kind of like being born a baby. You are born as a little human infant. And if that's who you are, 40 years later, there's a gigantic problem. Right? You have to have walked out, lived a life that was only possible because of the birth, but absolutely, certainly comes. Must. So he gives us all that we need. And then first Peter, Second Peter chapter 1 described what that looked like, what it was we are to make every effort to do. Remember that? Such that then verse 10 he even can come to conclude, and this practice, these qualities, if you, if you practice them, you'll never fall. And in this way, you will richly be provided entrance into the eternal kingdom. That was chapter 1. You don't get entrance into the eternal kingdom by knowing in your head the proper theology. Because you cannot, only, because you cannot divide that from the life then that is joined at the hip to the belief in the proper theology. Saving faith, never alone. We need to walk this out because the false teachers have shown us that talk is cheap. They affirm many of the same truths, say they believe them, and walk contrarily. But God has told us, here's my saving work and here's all the things that you need. I make you a new creation. I knit muscles onto your bones. I show you the path. I show you where it leads. Down the path, there's a light shining on the gate of heaven and I give you all the power you need to walk it. I show you what it looks like. I describe it in these verses. I give you the model of Jesus and the model of Paul and the model of Peter and I say, there, I will fuel you. I will direct you. I will encourage you. I will walk with you. Walk. And the person who says, no thank you, I'll just believe it, is not alive. Walk. Let us live lives of godliness and holiness. Seeing the end is coming. Choices to live godly and holy lives. Choices to live like Christ. Christ. 
to repent and turn back to live like Christ while God waits and calls. Pursue godliness, waiting for, that is expecting, looking forward to, and even hastening the coming day of promise. Think about that a little bit, because this is, I think, pretty interesting. Waiting for, looking forward to, expecting. This is so good that Peter is so explicit here about something that could be so easily misunderstood from everything I just said. Understand? What I just said could be so easily misunderstood. I am so thankful that Peter clarifies so that we won't miss it. It could be that what it just sounded like is live a life of holiness and godliness or else. And that is here because God is a God who disciplines. We will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There, there is an accounting for our lives, yeah, but that is not, not ever God's primary driver of us, his children. It's actually the promise of his grace. It's a primary driver for us, his children. So that's here, but what he lands on is live lives of holiness and godliness. Verse 12, waiting for the coming, waiting for the promise. What that is, is Peter saying, you live this not waiting for the coming judgment. You live this waiting for the coming promise. Verse 13, the promise the new heaven and the new earth. You're looking, waiting for the promise. That's what drives you. That's what calls you forward. Remember our broccoli eater? The non-eater, maybe? <laughs> Sitting at the table, holding up dessert for all the rest of us? Why should she change her position, repent? Why should she change her position and eat? Ice cream is coming. That's why. Not just because if you don't, I'm going to spank you. There is a disciplining of God in loving grace. And sometimes a parent may do that. Yeah. What I'm saying is that what Peter is saying, what the Bible says, is the primary way God drives his people is ice cream is coming. My grace is the driver. She knows, she's been told, if, when she eats, as soon as she eats, but only if she eats, knowing and believing all the right theory about that isn't enough, she has to eat. And everybody else at the table knows that, and so all the other kids are saying, come on, sis, eat the broccoli. Mom bought cookies and cream. It's in the freezer. Look, the bowls and the spoons are on the counter. Look. Look ahead at what is going to come and eat. Turn from your path, sis, repent and eat. All over the Bible, that's how God works, holding up in front of us the promise, and in this case, it's stated as waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the end of the passage. So Christian, look ahead at that. Look ahead at that. Help yourself regularly when you're struggling with sin, when you're, when you're walking in the spot where 
Holiness and godliness would be over here, and I'm not over, I'm over here. Ah, ah, ah. How you get that is, how you get to that, how God wants to move you to that is not, I'm going to get my belt, but rather, cookies and cream are in the freezer. Eat. That's how he wants to move you. Tell yourself that. Drive yourself from sin repentantly back to him with the promise of his coming grace, particularly from this context, the promise of the new heaven and the new earth. When life is hard and depressing and so powerfully tempting, behold in your imagining eyes, because you can't actually see the literal gates, behold in your imagining eyes, read about it in the Bible and let it, let it run through your mind, a kingdom of glory. That makes this place look ridiculous. I love this place way too much. You do too. There's a kingdom coming that's going to make this look ridiculous. And all this stuff that we long for and that pulls us and that gets us down and that, that kind of says, hey, here's where life is found. Ridiculous. There's a coming new heaven and new earth where all sin and all pain and all death is wiped away and all that dwells there is righteousness, which is not sterile theology. That's another word for goodness. God himself dwells there and all of his people gather around and say, behold the goodness of the righteous one that he somehow, for some reason, undeservedly gave to me. Oh my goodness, thank you. The glory of the goodness of God fills that place. It's what you were made for, and God wants that blessing for you, and so he's patiently waiting and calling you. Repent. Not because or else, but because certainly. That's what drives a person's personal commitment to personal holiness. The new heavens and the new earth are coming. Promised, offered, I'm called to it. And he's waiting because he wants me to get it. Walk towards that, looking, and even hastening it. Which I'm only going to say a little bit about, because while it might seem confusing, it's actually not. Again, if you think about Noah, if Noah had worked half days, it would have taken twice as long. And probably in some days that were particularly miserable, he worked into the night to try to finish quickly. The sooner he finishes the ark, the sooner the end comes. All this is saying is that what we do actually matters. But of course we can't like outdo an outfox and outsmart God. Like he's going to have the, the day be here. Aha, aha, now you have to have it here. No, it's ridiculous. But what we do matters. And somehow, that's all I can say, is that somehow what we do matters and brings about what God already planned. It's, we already know that. We pray, don't we? We don't like twist God's arm and do something he didn't want to do because I asked. I ha he has to. We, we pray and God answers. We share our faith and people trust Christ, not because we made them, but because God worked through what we do. What we do matters. If God is patiently waiting for all of his people to repent. Repentance matters. Maybe for you, maybe he's waiting for you, 
Maybe he's waiting for multiples of us or people 100 years from now. Maybe our sin is standing in the way of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that will bring a revival like we've never seen. I don't know. I don't know. But somehow here, and this is not the only place in the Bible, Peter actually also said something like this in Acts 3, which I don't have time to go to. But somehow what we do matters. So hear this. Repent. Pursue holiness and godliness. And walk towards the coming day. And as you walk and your pace hastens, your pace quickens, the day gets closer. God's promised day is coming. Look at it and in hope run towards it in holiness and godliness. Let me pray. Father, send the Son. We say something like this after every communion. We say it today too, it fits. Send the Son, but don't send him until you have gathered in every one of the sheep that he's chasing right now. Build your church and honor his name and give each of us commitment to walk after you in holiness and godliness. Thank you, Lord. We love you and we trust you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.